0: Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature is made possible in part by Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative producing local food with the future in mind since 1988. Learn more at organicvalley.com. Welcome
1: to the Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature.
0: This is about how chemicals are trespassing into our bodies and how our health, our ability to learn, our ability to have healthy babies is being violated without our permission and without the chemical industry being held accountable for the harm that you're creating in fish, in frogs, and in us. I am talking about the need to restore the feminine and about the science that is suggesting that if we want to protect the planet, all of the planet, we focus on what we need to do to protect 12-year-old girls. It's all alive. It's all connected. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives.
1: We stand at the threshold of a historic opportunity in the human experiment to reimagine how to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life each other, and future generations. It's a revolution from the heart of nature and the human heart. In this series, The pioneers' Revolution from the Heart of Nature, we celebrate social and scientific innovators with breakthrough solutions for restoring people and planet, creating a future environment of hope. Something is definitely fishy. In the Potomac River, just upstream from Washington, D.C., about one of every three fish is now intersex, exhibiting both male and female sexual characteristics. More than 80% of male smallmouth bass are growing eggs, the likely cause endocrine-disrupting chemicals that mimic female hormones, a.k.a. gender benders. From pesticides to pharmaceuticals like Viagra, Prozac, and huge amounts of estrogen, these gender benders are now surfacing in 80% of the waterways in the United States. Naturally, they also contaminate the tap water we drink. Of course, people are animals, too. What's happening to the fish is happening to us. From the disproportionate births of baby girls in the Arctic, to falling sperm counts and spiking breast reduction operations in men, these chemicals are feminizing all us critters. How did we get here, and what can we do about it? Join us for the next half hour as we explore Just Like a Woman, nature, chemicals, and the feminization of science. I'm Neil Harvey. Welcome to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature.
0: I do want to talk to you about chemicals in commerce and chemicals in our bodies and what we can do about it. But I want to talk about chemicals not because I think they're more important than any other piece of our common wound, but because it's one more way for us to tell the story of what's wrong and a different path that may be more open right now of how we make things right.
1: Charlotte Brody has been at the forefront of the environmental health movement since 1994, when she joined Lois Gibbs of Love Canal fame to stop hazardous waste dumping and toxic incineration. Two years later, she co-founded Health Care Without Harm and served as its co-director for 10 years. Then, in her role as executive director of Commonweal, a nonprofit health and environmental research institute, she went on to lead uniquely effective and innovative programs on human health and the health of the planet. Her goal is an ecological medicine grounded in the recognition that human and environmental health are inseparable. Brody suggests that there is a fundamental need to restore a female perspective to the male-dominated world of science. Is it any accident, she wonders, that the first person to sound the alarm about chemical pollution was a woman? Rachel Carson's ecological perspective was informed by her scientific training as a biologist and her skill as a nature writer. And thinking like a woman may have enabled a different way of seeing the problems and the solutions. At a recent Bioneers conference, Charlotte Brody recounted the story of the female scientist whose work inspired the environmental movement.
0: Rachel Carson wrote The Sea Around Us on weekends and evenings while she worked to support her family as a biologist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. By the time The Sea Around Us came out in 1951, it was destined for the bestseller list, and it was on the New York Times bestseller list for 83 weeks. So Rachel got to quit her day job, and she sat down to a life of writing nature books. She wrote two more books, In the 60s, she had a really devoted fan base, including a young Charlotte Brody, amazed that somebody could write about science like it was poetry. And then her friend, who was the literary critic for the Boston Post, sent her a letter. And in the letter, she talked about the aerial spraying of DDT that was happening in her community to control the mosquitoes and how she'd come home from work to find the bird bath in her backyard surrounded by dead and dying birds. And she wrote about how, you know, just a few days later, she realized that the mosquitoes were all still there, but that the bees and the grasshoppers were gone. After reading the letter, Rachel started collecting information about pesticides, information that became the book Silent Spring, Rachel's family and friends discouraged her from writing Silent Spring. She was a writer about the beauty of nature and they thought this topic was too grim and that it would hurt her already fragile health. Her best friend kept calling it the poison book and kept trying to tease Rachel out of writing it. But Rachel persevered. She became a Reader's Digest condensed book, a Book of the Month Club selection. And then Wallace Shawn at The New Yorker published a couple of chapters. And the story goes that William O. Douglas, the Supreme Court Justice, read it, sent it to Jackie Kennedy, the First Lady, who gave it to her husband, who gave it to the two senators from New York State, and DDT got banned. Silent Spring and the federal laws that came out of Silent Spring saved the Hawks the eagles, the songbirds, and the pelicans that I'm lucky enough to see behind my common wheel office in Bolinas. What saved them was Rachel's commitment to go where the evidence led her, even when the new science was uncomfortable and messy, to deeply understand what Mary Oliver means when she says, what is called definitive right away is a brag to be enough of a detached scientist to let go of your own frameworks of knowledge when they no longer accurately diagram how the world works. That's what Rachel was doing in Silent Spring. When she reviewed the evidence, she came to understand that the neat scientific framework that was being used to justify fogging entire communities with DDT because it was safe was based on a linear model that left out as much evidence as it let in. Specifically, Rachel wrote about how the framework didn't include the dose to birds who ate thousands of insects in a day and who were bioaccumulating much more of the DDT toxin than was calculated as safe. It didn't include the collateral damage that was part of the equation, that the amount necessary to kill a mosquito was more than enough to kill a bee or a grasshopper or other species. It didn't include that the amount considered safe because it had no visible harm on an adult, could have a profound effect on a developing child. This multi-generational effect is what made pelicans and hawks almost extinct. And the wholesale spraying of DDT didn't consider if there were safer ways to get the same result.
1: Charlotte Brody reminds us that it was Rachel Carson who first saw the connections, how chemical spraying to eliminate weeds and insects could work its way through the food web to harm birds who ate the insects. She said these biocides were changing the very nature of the world, the very nature of its life. Her book Silent Spring was viciously attacked by the chemical and pesticide industries and Carson herself was savaged not only as a fanatic defender of the cult of the balance of nature but also as a spinster with no reason to care about reproductive problems anyway.
0: Again, Charlotte Brody. The response to Rachel's critique did not take the form of reasoned discourse on the limitations of the dominant scientific paradigm. Instead, the chemical industry or the far bureaus went for the jugular. Rachel wasn't even advocating for a ban of DDT, although that's what the federal law became. She was warning against the dangers of misuse and overuse of pesticides, and proposing that, instead of always trying to impose our will on nature, we should sometimes be quiet and listen to what she has to tell us. But the attack accused Rachel of wanting to end all commerce. After the second installment of Silent Spring appeared in The New Yorker, A man from California wrote to the magazine, Miss Rachel Carson's reference to the selfishness of insecticide manufacturers probably reflects her communist sympathies, (laughs) like a lot of our writers these days. We can live without birds and animals, but as the current market slump shows, we cannot live without business. As for insects. Isn't it just like a woman to be afraid of a few little bugs?
1: When sales of Silent Spring passed the half-million mark, in early 1963, CBS News broadcast an hour-long documentary. Carson quietly and assuredly warned against implementing new technologies before fully understanding the consequences. In the documentary, she said, Man is part of nature, and his war against nature is inevitably a war against himself. We are challenged as never before to prove our maturity and our mastery, not of nature, but ourselves. Environmental health advocates could easily make that same statement today. The mind-bending reality in the United States is that 95% of all chemicals in commerce have never been tested for toxicity or environmental impact. Since the law regulating chemicals was passed in 1976, the EPA has banned only five chemicals. Since 1996, the chemical industry has coughed up $47 million in federal election campaign booty. It spends about $30 million a year on K Street lobbyists. What is the connection? Environmental health advocates challenge the associations between scientists and the chemical industry the same way Carson did more than 60 years ago. Charlotte Brody zeroes in on the root of the problem, when we return. This is just like a woman, nature, chemicals, and the feminization of science. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. You can download this and other programs on the radio pages at www.bioneers.org. Charlotte Brody says the first generation of environmentalists was inspired by Rachel Carson's book Silent Spring. They worked on pesticides, water quality, and endangered species. Now thousands of organizations and individuals are advancing this kind of environmental health agenda. One example is the Collaborative for Health and the Environment, a program of Commonweal. CHE, or CHE, is a network of 2,900 partners in 48 U.S. states and 45 countries that advocates for public policies that sustain the health of the environment as the basis of human health. Brody works at the roots of environmental health problems, challenging policies driven by industry and commerce. She, along with many others, seek to reverse the burden of proof of harm onto chemical manufacturers, not on society, as it is today.
0: I think there is a place for proof. I think it is a very fine thing to live in a country with the ideal of being innocent until proven guilty, an ideal we should put into practice more often, with clear guidance that it is meant to protect the freedom of the individual from the power of the state. But as we've all learned from Carolyn Raffensberger and others' fine work on the precautionary principle, legal proofs of human harm are the wrong criteria to use for chemicals. So how did this happen? Is this just the story of K Street lobbyists and politicians who are beholden to the industry that funds them, in part, But I want to say out loud to all of you that I also think we are being seduced and harmed by the linear, by the myth that neat mathematical formulas to determine risk are superiorly scientific even when they leave out more data than they include. I want to ask out loud if it is really so scientific and mature to have scientific conclusions and public policy based on the ideas that warnings and the evidence don't matter until there is proof, that emotions and suffering have no place, that intuitive actions to reduce harm based on common sense are trifles to be belittled and condemned. Isn't real discovery messier, layered, more like a labyrinth? I think we need to ask the defenders of proof, is it really good science or is it just the most profound and embedded kind of sexism?
1: Certainly as the saying goes, who pays the piper calls the tune. More often than not, the environmental science of chemistry reflects a bias toward industry and commerce. But Charlotte Brody is suggesting more. She proposes that the exclusively linear cause-and-effect approach that's associated with male thinking patterns does not jibe with the web of life's intricate web of relationships, where it's seldom just one cause or just one effect.
0: What kind of evidence is being ignored? I could talk about the doubling of asthma rates or the stunning increase in autism or the statistics on childhood cancers But just to be thematic, let me keep the focus on sex. Fewer baby boys are being born, especially in places where contamination is the highest. A brand new study released last month of indigenous people in Arctic villages in Greenland and Eastern Russia found that twice as many girls as boys are being born. In one indigenous village in Greenland, only girls are being born. Even when baby boys are being born, there is strong evidence that chemicals at extraordinarily small levels of exposure act like estrogens are harming the male reproductive system. Hypospadias, this is when the opening of the urethra isn't at the tip of the penis, it's become an increasingly common uh, male birth defect. Undescended testes at birth is going up. Testosterone and sperm counts are going down. And testicular cancer in young men is on the rise. Every month, there is another study that suggests all these different endpoints may be the same problem, which is now being called testicular dysgenesis syndrome, or TDS, which is increasingly being linked to prenatal and early life exposures to chemicals that act like female hormones. And female hormones, when they come from chemicals rather than from our bodies, aren't so good for the female of the species either. While there isn't as much research on females as there is on males, duh, um, (laughs) premature puberty Breast cancer, infertility, spontaneous abortion, endometriosis are all on the rise and are all being linked in part to exposure to chemicals that interrupt a girl and a woman's own hormonal signaling.
1: In order to see these intricate connections and conduct research that helps us to understand them, scientists need to tune into the complex nature of the web of life. A recent study of diversity in science, technology, and engineering programs around the United States show that there's a dearth of women in those fields. Julie Beth Zimmerman, assistant professor in environmental engineering at Yale, was co-author of the study. She makes the argument that science needs the different perspectives that women bring. Because women's brains are wired for relationships, they're often better at focusing on the social relationships that are needed to design the right solutions. As more women enter scientific fields, our whole notion of how to do science may be undergoing a change. Sometimes, Charlotte Brody says, it's just like a woman to look at things in a different way.
0: A fine new study from environmental health perspectives by Barbara Cohn and Mary Wolfe and others found that women who were exposed to relatively high levels of DDT Rachel Carson's chemical, before they were 14 years old, had five times the rate of breast cancer than women with lower levels of exposure. DDT, bisphenol A, phthalates, dioxins, PCBs. As the mother of sons, I want my sons to be in touch with their feminine, but not like this. Not because my uterus and my breast milk were contaminated with feminizing industrial chemicals not because the chemicals that I was exposed to ended up exposing them. We are learning from the new technology called biomonitoring that the chemicals around us are in us, that small doses once thought safe can do us harm, that exposures to chemicals are one of the many factors, diet, stress, access to health care, genes, infections, poverty, racism, that in a non-linear but ecological mix can combine into chronic disease. But this new ecological understanding also gives us hope, because any stressor in this mix of stressors that we can reduce will allow more resilience and more health. Chemical exposure is one of the stressors we can do something about. And the impact of what we are learning from biomonitoring, from low-dose effects, from chemicals that act like hormones, is beginning to be acknowledged in laws and corporate policies to reduce exposures. A new multi-state coalition called SAFER has formed to move policy in the same direction as Canada and the European Union, who have both taken steps to reverse the burden of proof so that in our lifetimes, or maybe in our children's lifetimes, if not ours, chemicals will need to have their safety demonstrated before they are put into the products we use every day. Rather than... rather than people having to prove a chemical is causing them harm before that chemical can be removed from commerce.
1: The European Union passed the REACH program on chemical policy in 2007. Before entering into commerce, a large array of chemicals now has to first be tested for toxicity. REACH uses the precautionary principle, which emphasizes prevention and compels society to look at a full range of safer alternatives. As a result, safer substitutes are already replacing some of the worst bad actors. And Julie Beth Zimmerman of Yale points to a new strategy to reduce chemical harm that comes from the next generation of chemical engineers. They ask, what if we could design safer chemicals? Peering into the molecular structure of toxic chemicals, they're learning that their industry could have a game changing role in improving environmental health. What will it really take to restore the health of the world around us and the environment within us? Perhaps the first place to begin the cleanup is to realize that we are part of a dynamic, intertwined, and interdependent system where any one small action can make a big difference, for good or ill. Again, Charlotte Brody.
0: So in closing, I want to ask for your help in preserving the male of our species and other species by embracing the feminine. By sticking up for the cult of the balance of nature and raising up the knowledge of indigenous people's understanding that linear systems of equity and justice, of individualism and autonomy, and hierarchical structures of thought and organization have to be balanced have to be balanced. They have to be balanced in our own lives and in public policy by the feminine qualities of intuition and a prioritization of relationship and connectivity. They have to be balanced so we can create public policies that are less about filling all the blanks in a linear calculation that proves harm, and more about the availability of solutions that are inherently less dangerous. So how do we do this? Well, we start with where we are. We start with how much we have siloed and hierarchically sorted and ranked ourselves. We quit focusing on the distinctions and start looking for the connections. We try to appreciate the feminine and the masculine in every one of us. We work from the ecological understanding that any stressor we can lift off makes us more resilient so that any issue that any of us is working on that succeeds benefits us all. We let go of the fear that comes out as arrogance and find the courage to act like respectful guests. We tell all the stories that explain on how what harms the fish in the Potomac or the rats in the lab are also going to harm us. We try to really live with the Bioneers idea that it's all connected It's all alive. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives. That's what Rachel Carson was trying to teach us. And my relatives, I'm still trying to learn it. But it's hard to do. The work we have ahead of us will be difficult. But if it was easy, it would have already been done. And just because it will be difficult doesn't mean it won't be fun. Just because it will be difficult doesn't mean it won't be beautiful. Happy birthday, Rachel. Thank you, and thank you.
1: Charlotte Brody, honoring the legacy of Rachel Carson by building on her legacy to feminize science and restore our environment. Just like a woman, nature, chemicals, and the feminization of science. Downloads of this program and many other Bioneers radio shows are available on the radio pages at www.bioneers.org or by calling 1-877-BIONEER. That's 1-877-246-6337. Visit Bioneers.org where you can learn how to attend the annual October Bioneers National Conference and local beaming Bioneers conferences. Purchase the radio series, conference CDs and DVDs, and Bioneers books. Join the thriving online Bioneers community and become a Bioneers member or make a donation. All at Bioneers.org or by calling 1-877-BIONEER. The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Catherine Stifter and Kenny Ausubel. Senior producer, Neil Harvey. Managing producer, Stephanie Welch. Production management, Aaron Leventman and Chuck Castleberry. Station relations by Creative PR. Distribution is by WFMT Radio Network. Original recordings provided by Reference Media Group. Our theme music is taken from the album Journey Between by Baca Beyond and used by permission of Hannibal Records, a Disc label. Additional music was made available by Silver Wave Records at silverwave.com. For more music information, please visit bioneers.org. The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature radio series are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Collective Heritage Institute, the Underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the pioneers in inspiring a shift to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. This is program number 1009.
0: Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature is made possible in part by Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative producing local food with the future in mind since 1988. Learn more at organicvalley.com.